Hi. Wow. Yeah, Dave is still gone. He'll be back next week. Um, but hey, I want to just say, this has been fun. I've had a lot of fun being with you for the last couple of weeks. And uh, since I'm here, I want to review a little bit of what we've talked about. Uh, today we're closing out the book of Romans. And we started three weeks ago, three weeks ago, two weeks ago. This is the third week, so it was two weeks ago. And we talked about Paul going out and declaring the gospel, preaching the name of Christ as a pioneer in places where it had not gone out before. And in verse 30, he says, would you strive with me in prayer? And I don't know if you remember, but we sent out postcards to missionaries. I wanted to thank you because those have gone out and now we're getting responses back from our missionaries who have been blessed. And it was amazing. It's, it's been good to hear from them and it's been good to encourage them. If you still have those, I encourage you to get those out. Um, and then last week we talked about, what was the word? Particularized. Good. You can't say it, but you know what I'm talking about. And so I, I actually was the beneficiary of being particularized a little bit this week, as some of you sent it to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but in particular, one family really took the message to heart, and uh, I, I felt particularized in a way that I wasn't even expecting this week. Um, got up on Monday morning and uh, went out to our front yard, and this is what we saw. <laughs> if you can't read it, in toilet paper fashion, it says, we love you, Matt. And so they don't know that I know, but I just wanted to thank Dirk and Julie Vanderwall <laughs> for particularizing us at our house. We were actually low on toilet paper, so it was great. My kids had a lot of fun picking it up, and uh, we can't wait to particularize them at some point in the future. <laughs> All right, we are closing out the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16, if you would go there, we're going to start in verse 17. Uh, and this is every pastor's dream is just to have a few verses. I used to sit in church and like there'd be pastors that would talk about one or two verses. I'm like, how are they going to stretch this out for the next 35 minutes? And for some reason, I now have that ability. So um, we're going to talk about this idea of living free from deception. And to say that there's deception means that there has to be some kind of fooling around that is going on that we have to be cautious about. And, and this is from the assumption this morning that Satan is laying traps. Now, when I was in fourth through sixth grade ministry leading that here at Calvary, we played a little game called Minefield with your children and grandchildren. Um, and we would clear out the room, but we would actually start kids on one side of the room and we would in maybe like a little narrow area like this, say, you have to go from this side over to the other side, and we would put out lots of uh, traps. There would be chairs, and we'd put a table up on end, and we'd put like some cones in the way. And then just to make it fun and interesting, we would take out a few rat traps. And I'm still working here for some reason. And so we would blindfold that poor child... And then we would ask them, just so we could really build some faith, uh, to take their shoes off. And they started at one end of the room, and there would be a voice on the other end guiding them. All right, take a couple steps forward. Okay, now move to your... Whoa, 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 whoa! Move to the right. And when it was getting really close, we would run in and pick them up and make sure. But no, no one lost any toes. But the idea is that, that we have an enemy, um, the great deceiver... 
And the great deceiver has a plan to deceive, and he wants to catch us unsuspecting. And so this idea of traps is going to come up uh, a couple times as we talk throughout this passage this morning. So I want to start in verse 17. And it it says this, and this is Paul. Again, Paul is writing uh, a letter. We're reading somebody else's mail, the book of Romans. And this is what he says, Now I urge you. Remember the context for this. He just listed off a whole bunch of names. But just before he's about to close, he has some words. I urge you. I need to tell you something. Brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. This idea is that we have to steer clear from those who deceive. And obviously that seems like an easy no-brainer. But there, there's a little bit of contradiction that, that Paul is entering into. As you look through some of these words, he says, I urge you, it's, uh, the, the word parakaleo, it's, a, it's coming alongside as a, as a paraclete. And he's saying, I want you to keep your eye on. It's, it's this other word, it, it, it's scopeo. It, it, it's to look through a scope, but to examine really carefully. It's something that's a little bit far off. And I want you to keep your eye fixed on it. And he says, the thing that I want you to keep your eye fixed on is there, there are people who are causing dissensions or divisions and then they're causing hindrances. And in the way that they're doing it is they're telling you things that are contrary to the things that you have already heard. Now, the church in Rome is solid. The church in Rome is doing well. And we've had examples of that all throughout where Paul is commending their faith. But here he's saying, I want you to watch. I want you to be careful because there are people in the body who are seeking to divide you and they are hindering you and so you have to watch out for it. And so he says this but there's there's this idea that as you kind of steer clear that that's what this means. He says when you turn away from them it, it literally means to steer clear from them. And and so it's this idea of Deceivers divide, and therefore we must divide from deceivers. And there's two crowds. Mainly when Paul is talking about this, this is a, a unity passage. He, he's saying, I want you to look at this, but it's also a, a purity passage. And I want you to just identify and look that there are two crowds that are involved. There is the unity crowd. And that is the group of people that emphasize the preciousness of personal relationships. And they tend to neglect an emphasis on truth. Those are the people that just kind of say, can't we just all get along? Can't we just be friends? Let's overlook some of the differences that we have and let's come together. On the other end, and this is a spectrum and you can be somewhere in the middle of this, we have the purity crowd that emphasizes the preciousness of the truth, but they tend to neglect the nurturing of personal relationships. And so as he's talking about this, he's saying, and this is, this is the part where it feels a little bit like he's contradicting himself, watch out for those who divide. There are people who are coming in and they want to separate you. And so the thing I want you to do is if the dividers are coming through, I want you to divide from them for the sake of unity. Does that make sense? There's a, an apparent contradiction here, but... I believe, and I want you to understand this and to feel this in your bones, that, that Paul is talking about there has to be a purity of doctrine. There has to be a, a belief that we are all coming into and we are all coming together. And we have to say, 
You know what? When there are people that come along and they are going to the left or to the right of this doctrine that we have been taught, we have to divide from them for the sake of unity. He says, I would prefer truth-based disunity for the sake of truth-based unity. If you have this unity, but you're not really in agreement, then it's not really Christian unity at all. And so he is going through some of this, and he is he's talking through this, and says, you got to keep your eye on them, to watch out. And it's not easy today in our Western culture to be a truth person. It's not easy to stand up and say, hold on, I don't know if what you are saying is exactly right, because you get labeled. You can be called a fundamentalist. You could be called out of date. You could be called rude. You could be called a divider for trying to keep unity. Does that make sense? And so Paul is wrestling with this and he's warning them. And he says that there's importance to having purity for the sake of unity. Now on your outline, on the back, I want to give you a couple of clarifications. If you look uh, where it says life group discussion... Uh, as you look at this, there has to be a balance. Because what could happen is if you are going after purity of the doctrine, if you're saying that I value truth, uh, that we could sometimes go on a witch hunt and we are looking for it. And so there's a couple of clarifications and maybe even cautions as we're looking at this. And, and here's number one. Uh, when it says watch out for divisions, it is possible to go overboard with this. Um, in America, where you could kind of say, and Paul could have just said this too, like, hey, you know, you have some truth and I have some truth. Can't we just all get along and like, let's just move past this and be friends? It, it's not an obscene thought to say like, we just, can we just move forward? But Paul is very clear about this, that he says we have to have truth-based unity. And for that, I'm willing to risk some disunity, that we have to have some divisions. But the problem with this is that you could become so obsessed with doctrinal error that is the only thing that you're looking at and you fail to rejoice when you hear the truth. And if you saw the email this week, I talked about bomb-sniffing dogs. And the problem with a bomb-sniffing dog or a drug-sniffing dog is after their work day is done, they come home and they're still sniffing for it. In fact, they never stop. And that could become how we just operate is we're just always looking and there's always like this witch hunt that is going on. And so we have to be able to, even the, the inability to refrain from entering into that conversation all of the time is a sign of our own ill health, that we, we can't help ourselves but to see something and then go after it. And so what are we supposed to do with these people as we, we, we go through. And, and one of the other cautions and clarifications is, is that there is a body of doctrine. There is a truth. And we live in this relativistic world today where you can have your truth and I can have my truth and, and whatever you say and your morality is fine for you and I'm going to hold over it here. And sometimes, even as Christians, we just shy away from the conversation altogether because... We just want a unity. We don't want to be labeled as these fundamentalists. So if we kind of just keep pressing into this and we, we keep finding these divisions, then you end up yourself in your own little corner. And we have splits left and right in the church today. And, 
and there's a third clarification on here. Be sure that when you read that, that you don't overinterpret. That we want to leave room to love our enemies. Now, this is a situation that has come up in the American church all the time. And you can look at just how many denominations. I think we're at something like 40,000. I can't even imagine. But just tons and tons of hairs that we want to split. But even recently, you in the last year have maybe seen this in Christianity Today. Um, one uh, pastor and one of my favorite authors, his name is John Ortberg. Uh, he's the pastor of Menlo Presbyterian Park Church, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. And in the last year and a half, they've had to make a decision whether or not they are going to split from the Presbyterian denomination over all kinds of issues. And if you've been following and tracking what's going on in the Presbyterian Church, it feels very foreign and very different from even the doctrine and the theology that we hold to here at Calvary. Um, But even them as a church, for them to remove themselves out of the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA is is the denomination, um, to take themselves out, it was going to come at a cost. An actual financial cost. There's relational cost for sure, but the financial cost was about $9 million. $9 million. And so for a while, as a church, they prayed. And they considered and they thought, and is this the best thing for us? Do we divide? Because there's obviously some doctrinal differences and we're not sure if we want to associate and go in that direction. So $9 million and... A lot of the pastoral staff and the elders said, you know what, to make up the difference, we'll just start selling our houses. Uh, In fact, John Ortberg, the senior pastor, his wife is Nancy Ortberg. When they moved into their house 10 years ago, she said, I love this house. This is the house that I want to stay in for the rest of my life. And when I die, bury me in the backyard. And when John brought this idea of maybe we just need to sell the house, she said, I don't even need to pray about it. It's the right thing to do. And so God is working and God is blessing, but then you have this example of you have to divide sometimes for the sake of purity and maybe the best unity is one that says that we're going to all come together and we're going to believe in the truth. And so we stand for that at Calvary and we applaud that. And then you have to look at who is it? What is it that deceivers look like? Because, you know, it's... It's not like, ah, it's going to be really obvious or it's going to be somebody who's standing outside the church. I mean, even, I, I, is it Westboro Park? There's a church that at every soldier's funeral and, and this week as Robin Williams passed away uh, has labeled him a gay pimp and is standing outside protesting any kind of visuals, uh, visuals um, that, that they are out there and they're saying, look, we want to we wanna divide. What, what do these deceivers look like um, well, it's, it's maybe not as obvious, but here's what Paul is telling the church in Rome that they should be looking for. And he says this in verse 18. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, their own bellies. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That's what deceivers look like. They are slaves of their own bellies. There's something in it for them. Whether that is money, sex, or power, they're going after it and they're saying, listen to us. But it's not in an outrageous, rageful kind of way. Um, They have a motivation and their motivation is of their own appetites and their manner, it says, by their smooth, 
um, which, which means like a peaceful, pleasant way. They're smooth and flattering speech. That word flattering actually translates to blessing. And so you listen to some of these guys at times and you can even start to think through, and I don't want to name names, but think through some of the people that you've seen, whether it's on TV or other churches that you've gone to, that you've seen that there are people with smooth and flattering speech and they are slowly leading others away from pure doctrine. And Paul says you have to watch out for that. You have to be careful about that. Um, We have a book in the bookstore. Um, Randy has a few of these available. Um, But there is this prosperity gospel that's going around, and this is a book that I looked at this week. Uh, It's called Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Has the prosperity gospel overshadowed the gospel of Christ. And in this book, it outlines some of the ways that you can identify and you can look at deceivers. And what does that look like even today um, as even mainline uh, theology is coming out? And so if you're interested in looking more into that, this is a book that we have available in the bookstore. But as you look through this, it's, it's again, it's this idea of, of this trap. When, when Paul says that there are people who are causing divisions and and dissensions and hindrances that word hindrances is kind of interesting it's a word called scandalon in the greek and it's where we get the word scandal it actually is we have one here with us today on this rat trap um, there's the part that you put the bait on right this is called the scandalon you put the bait on it and then you set the trap and and this thing i and I, i tried working this out last night but i was scared and i asked a couple people this morning to help and we already had one injury but this bar right here that kind of snaps, ooh, shut, this is called the kill bar. It's called the kill bar if you look at the instructions. But all you have to do is put the bait right here on, on the scandalon. Scandal actually means to jump up or to snap shut. And so the enemy, as he is trying to catch us, it, if you really want to catch a rat, you don't like put one piece of, of cheese or peanut butter or whatever it is that they want. You actually cover the whole thing up and you let them eat their way in. I was actually at Home Depot yesterday and you look at rat poison, you know how much poison is in it? 0.01%. 0 0.01%. 99.9%. Look at the active ingredients in there. 99.9% of it is real food. It's good food, but it's that 0.01%. And so if you really want to catch a rat, you cover this whole thing up. You make it look like it's nothing but good food. And as they eat their way down, then they jump on that scandalon and the kill bar comes out and then they are dead. That's how you catch a rat. And Satan is doing that today, but it's not obvious at times. Most of the time it comes by people with smooth and flattering speech and the trap is hidden within a message that seems like it's mostly truthful. And so we have to be looking out. We have to watch out. So we look at this and and you go on and he says in verse 19, he says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Um, the Phillips translation of this passage is great. He says, I want you to be experts in good and not even beginners in evil. 
Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves. I want you to be as innocent as doves. On the back of your outline, again in the top part, there are some warnings. This idea of false teachers or false prophets is all throughout the word. There were people that were coming up saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God all throughout the Old Testament. And they were saying that we are prophets and and you have to watch out for them because they are not speaking the truth. But even Jesus He says in Matthew 7, and this is on the back of your outline, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And then later on in Mark 12, it says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses And for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And I think that at times we look at our job as the crusader, as we're going to follow through and we're going to weed them all out. And the passage just simply says, avoid them. Avoid them. It doesn't say excommunicate them. It doesn't say let thunder fall on them. In fact, there, there's that passage. It's in uh, Luke. In Luke, it says, you, you remember this? Uh, Jesus is walking and we have the sons of thunder, James and John. And, and Jesus is going. He's getting ready for his entrance into Jerusalem. And he sends some messengers ahead. Um, and they entered into a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus to come. It says, but they did not receive him. They actually rejected Jesus from even coming into the town because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, this is why they get that name, when they saw this, when they heard that Jesus was rejected, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Can we just blot them out right now? Let's just destroy them. Let's excommunicate. Let's make them regret that they ever brought this up, that they ever said no. He turned and he actually rebuked his disciples. You know what Jesus said? You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then the little add-on is, and they went on to another village. Even Jesus just avoided them. And I know that I've had times in my life where I felt more prepared than others and you get the knock on the door and it's somebody from some other religion and they have a magazine and something that they want to share and I just, I'm ready to go, let's do it. But what it's saying is, you know, don't entertain it. Just avoid. Just avoid them. And so we want to be wise and experts in what is good but not even beginners in what is evil. And part of that is protecting. And we have to know what the truth is. Um, there, there was a, a ring in the last couple of weeks that was caught counterfeiting money. I don't know if you read about this. Uh, it's been an investigation for quite a while. But they caught this ring uh, of Israelis and Americans who have been printing $100 bills. This operation started in 1999. And they've been printing counterfeits and and i this is the only hundred dollar bill i have but this is a hundred dollar bill but what was interesting is for the last 15 years they were able to pass off more than 77 million dollars not bad 
They actually had a Heidelberg offset printing press in Tel Aviv, and they were actually putting one in New Jersey when they were caught in the last couple of months. But what was interesting was that they had something that was so close to the original, and, and it was so good that everybody who took it, they received it. It wasn't really... They weren't able to to catch that it was counterfeit money until it actually got to the feds. When it got to the treasury and when they finally looked at it, they were able to see it. And, And as you look across, look, again, this is not invitation to divide and go on a witch hunt and say, Ha! I have permission now. I have license at church. They told me today and I'm going to start dividing. I'm going to start seeking out ways to cut people off. I knew they were wrong. You might not see them here in this earth, but when they go back to the head honcho, when they have that report before the king of kings, he'll know and he'll take care of it. And so part of it is using wisdom. When do you step into it and you divide for the sake of unity and when do you just avoid and walk away? Are you with me? There were a couple of guys, and this is a problem that has gone on all throughout the years, Two examples from history. There's one guy named Arius from the year 336. The write-up on him was this. He was a bright, energetic, attractive fellow, the kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome, singing sea chanties in dockside pubs and teaching Bible stories to the Wednesday night faithful. This was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that hearsay does not bludgeon us into belief. We are seduced. That's Arius. Uh, in 17th century, there's another guy named Sosinus, and the description of him was that he was a gentleman. His morals were above reproach, and he distinguished himself by his unfailing courtesy. Unfailing courtesy was remarkable in an age when even the great Protestant leaders, Luther and Calvin, would use vile street language when arguing with their opponents. Paul is urging the church in Rome, and I want to urge us today to be watchful, to be looking, and to be aware that there are deceivers that want to divide, and when we see them, that we need to divide from the deceivers. But I also want us this morning to know that there is an ultimate deceiver, and God gives us victory over this ultimate deceiver. If you look in verse 20... It says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 433 verses in the book of Romans and Paul, after all of this theology, after all of this application, he gives one verse to the enemy. And he's saying, Satan, you're doomed. You're doomed. You don't have a shot. Ultimately, God has the victory. This is born out of a prophecy that comes from Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.15, when God sends a curse upon the serpent and he says, you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. There's a day when spiritual warfare will be over, where Satan will be put away. And I want us to see this because this is going to happen in three stages, and some of it has already happened. See, Satan has been decisively defeated. 
decisively defeated at the cross in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Satan can rage, but he cannot condemn. It's, it's like this. We talked about this this week with one of our meetings, and Tim Nellis, he said this. It, have you ever been thrown into a pool? You know the moment when you got caught off guard, but you have just a little bit, there's maybe a foot, and you were trying to push away, but now there's more people joining in, and you're trying to maybe throw your phone out so it's not going to get wet, right? Your wallet, you're trying to save. But there's a point where you, you fought it initially, and as you're being thrown in, you're, you're fighting it, but there's the point also where you just realize, I'm going down, right? And my thought is, as long as I'm going down, I'm taking all of you with me. If I have to get wet, then so do you. This is a little bit of, of what's going on with Satan. He has been decisively defeated. Oh, death, where is your sting? It was the ultimate surprise, not that Jesus was crucified, but that he could be crucified and then he could rise again. That he could come back to life was the greatest surprise. And so in one stage, Satan has been defeated, but he is also being defeated now. And that happens through Christians who believe and speak the truth, and they put on the armor of God. And it says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. It's amazing to read that passage and then you think about the world that we are living in and know that as we stand up and as we put on the armor of God, that Satan is being beaten even in that. We've talked about it and I, I'm just stuck on it because we need to know as Christians the atrocities that are being done to our brothers and sisters across the world. Here's a little video clip of just what is going on in the last week in the Middle East. Look at this. Tens of thousands of Christians fled villages like Karakush and Bartilla, just about 25 miles away. Most have come here to Erbil with nothing more than the clothes on their back. They have crossed a mountain on foot in the desert heat, forced to flee their homes, driven by their fear of ISIS. This woman says militants beheaded several men in her village and mounted their heads on the hoods of cars. ISIS is well armed, but sheer terror may be their most powerful weapon. Crucifixions, men tied together and marched to their deaths, shot in the head. Others buried alive, according to one Iraqi minister. Atrocities documented by the militants themselves and shared with the world on social media, sending a chilling message. We take no prisoners. They take everything from the house, from the store, everything. And they take like machine, everything, because they are Christian. Just the name Christian. They hate Christian especially. We don't know why. 
it was leave or die. They say if anyone don't become like Muslim, we're gonna kill them. Kill them. Each one, from baby and uh, woman, one old man. We don't have anything here. They bombed the churches and already took our houses. We have nothing here, no money, no ID, no travel documents. These desperate civilians came racing towards the helicopter, uh, throwing their children on board the aircraft. Uh, the crew was just trying to pull up as many people as possible. Uh, a, a little baby, a red-headed baby that ended up in my hands. It was chaotic, uh, it, it was crazy, uh, but we were able to then lift off with about 20 civilians. What's happening now to the Christians, to the Yazidis, to the minorities, and like in the last couple of days, to the, mostly to the Christians, is it's a genocide. What's happening is what happened 200 years ago with the Jews. We brought nothing, not even clothes, just horrors, this man says as he drives off. It's happening today in our world. The deceiver is up to no good again. And I can't imagine how it could get worse. But my hope lies in this passage. Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Satan will finally be defeated forever, thrown into the lake of fire, never to deceive or torment again. In 1 Corinthians, you can see, it says he must reign until he has put all enemies underneath his feet. Paul says underneath your feet because his victories are your victories if you are in Christ. And I just look at that passage and, and Paul, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And that, that word crush is, is to shatter into a lot of pieces. But I, I, I'm intrigued by the word soon and and. What was the conversation like as Paul and the Lord are working together to write this letter? And as Paul is listening to the Lord and he's saying, all right, the God of peace will, do I write down the word soon? I mean, think about, there's Psalms, Psalm 74. How long is the foe going to scoff, O God? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? How... How long is this going to go on? Lord, if I write down the word soon, does that mean like in my lifetime? Are you going to be coming next year? What was Paul thinking? What was that conversation that was going on between Paul and the God over the universe? And I think about this final passage. And it's in 2 Peter. And it says this in chapter 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, their appetites, their belly, remember, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Look, people have come and gone, and if he's going to come, where is he already? And that is what the enemies would love for us to believe. Where is he? Maybe I should just change sides and get on the, because it looks like stuff's happening over there. But don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is 
patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I look at what's going on in Iraq and Syria and all over the world right now, and I think Paul's words of soon comes as a promise to beleaguered saints that are trying to just survive in this world. And it looks like Satan has the upper hand and is devouring the world. I don't think that Paul ever dreamed that we would be here in 2014 and Jesus had not come back yet. But man, it feels close. I want to just leave you with one last verse, and it's from John 16. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I told you these things so that in me you will have peace. You can only have peace in me. In this world you will have trouble, tribulation. And man, for us, our trouble, sometimes it feels like, man, the air conditioning in my car is not working. I have trouble. My kid has a potty mouth. This is trouble, right? You look at that, that's trouble. And I think that that is the context. I mean, yes, Jesus loves us in the little things, but I think his scope of what he's looking at and the depth of despair, he sees what's going on. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God's not up there sweating it, wondering what is going to happen. There's going to be an end to the enemy. And so we have hope in that. But you can only have that hope if you put your hope in Jesus. So we do that today. As we respond and as we worship, I want us to sing a song of hope in the victory that we have in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, would you work? Whether there is an anxiety that is riddling our souls, whether there is a fear of what is going to happen, you know, you're not surprised. And though the enemy has set out his trap, may we be strong. May we not fall for deception. May we not give up because your timetable is not our timetable. Help us to trust in you. Help us to follow you. And Lord, we, we know that the enemy has his end, that he will be doomed. And so we look forward to the day where you will do away with evil, where you will do away with the accuser of the brethren, where you will do away with the great deceiver. And the victory that you have will be our victory and that we will stand with you one day as the enemy is thrown into the lake of fire and we will rejoice and there will be peace. And as Paul even ends this section, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Lord, that is our prayer today. So we worship you this morning by your spirit, and in the truth of the words that we are about to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.